Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hello, Biblical World listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Biblical World's own Lynn Koick, whom you haven't yet met, is hosting her very first episode with Amy Jill Levine today. Since you haven't yet met Lynn, let me introduce her briefly. Lynn is Provost Academic Dean and Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. She's led study tours in Israel, Greece, Turkey, and Italy, and she's a widely published author. She's written Ephesians in the New International Commentary on the New Testament series, Christian Women in the Patristic World, co-authored with On Scripts' Amy Brown-Hughes. She's written the Philippians Story of God commentary and also written a book called Women in the World of the Earliest Christians. Now let me introduce to you our guest, Amy Jill Levine. Dr. Levine, who prefers to go by AJ, is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies and Mary Jane Worthen Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University. She is also Affiliated Professor at the Wolf Institute at the Center for the Study of Jewish-Christian Relations at at, uh, Cambridge University in the UK. Uh, She is also an external affiliate of the Center for the Study of Judaism and Christianity in Antiquity at St. Mary's University in Twickenham. AJ has authored and edited numerous works, including The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, Short Stories by Jesus, Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, and the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which A.J. co-edited with Mark Z. Brettler. Her most recent book co-edited with Brettler is The Bible With and Without Jesus, How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories Differently. In spring of 2019, she was the first Jew to teach New Testament at Rome's Pontifical Biblical Institute in 2021. She was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you'd like to support what we're doing, head on over to onscript.study forward slash donate. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this episode. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Lynn Kohick, the host of the Biblical World podcast, and I am thrilled today to be talking with Dr. A.J. Levine, who is uh, my hero. She, she's embarrassed now that I said that, but it is true. I was nervous about doing this interview, I confess, because uh, you are my hero and I look up to your work uh, so much, but also because you're very gracious. And so I, I am uh, thrilled to be able to have this conversation on the Biblical World podcast. This podcast focuses on history and archeology, span culture and geography, of the Bible. And AJ, you, you have just lived in the world of the New Testament, uh, highlighting, illuminating, digging in deep. Uh, I, I don't know what, what images I want to I use uh, with all of this, but, um, but your expertise um, in, in the area of the uh, New Testament world, especially as you've looked at women's experiences, and also as you've looked at uh, Jewish experiences and uh, had that conversation even today with, uh, with Jews and Christians. These are the things I hope that we can, can, talk, about, uh, can talk about today. But I, I want to remark before we even delve into that, I was struck as I was reading over your uh, CV, how many projects 
you've done in collaboration with others. They keep you honest. Yeah. Right? And, you know, so often I think of scholarship as a solitary endeavor. Um, but, but yeah, you're, you're co-authoring with both Jewish and Christian and people of perhaps no particular faith. Um, so they keep you honest. Is that it? Is that? Well, they keep you honest. So if you say something that you think is obvious, somebody who's not quite in your area of expertise can say, well, exactly how do you know that? Um, which is always good for a scholar to be asked because we just you know we repeat stuff and sometimes we don't even think about it. Um, conventional wisdom is often not very wise. Um, and I tend to work with people who have expertise in, in a side area. So um, I'm very good uh, on the whole on Jewish life, but I, there are other people who are better on, say, uh, Greek philosophy or Roman social history um, or empire critical studies. So if I can write with somebody who knows something that's related to what I know, then the collaboration becomes infinitely richer. And I can also say to my collaborator, wait, wait a minute, how do you know that? Um, and I know just enough about all the er other areas to be dangerous. <laughs> yes. And, oh, I remember when I was in class and remember I was I was there when Mary put, you know, Jesus in the manger. I've been doing this a very long time. Um, so uh, I can say, well, I learned such and such back in, say, 1970 or 1980. Um, how How is it that you're coming up with this particular reading? So I work uh, extensively with Mark Brettler at Duke University, who's an expertise in Hebrew Bible and Jewish biblical interpretation. I work with Warren Carter, who's very good on the Roman social context. I've worked with Doug Knight, who does um, ancient Near Eastern law. Um, so the more you can work with other people, uh, the better off in the long run you are. You know, and I, I don't want to make this totally about gender, but it did uh, strike me as something that perhaps... Uh, women scholars, let me just throw this question out there. Do you feel women scholars are, uh, this is something they're more eager to do? Or do you think it's something that is is just how you're wired? Or what do you think? Um, I, I would never speak for all women scholars. I, I, that just makes me very nervous. And I also think that for women scholars, particularly junior scholars coming up for tenure, if you co-author something, your tenure and review committee will look at that as of less value. Um, so along with writing for other people, I've done major manuscripts just on my own um, when I'm looking at something where, in fact, I have that expertise and I don't need that external material as much as I would if I were writing a more broad based book, like a textbook um, or an annotated Bible. So it, I think women scholars ought to be able to both to have their own voices and to be able to collaborate and the problem here, I think, may be uh, more onerous on women scholars, but it's a more junior-senior thing. It's easier if you already have tenure or you're already a full professor where you don't have to have that additional monograph to do the collaborative work. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I would love to talk with you about one of your newest writings um, entitled The Difficult Words of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide to His Most Perplexing Teachings. I had a chance to take a look at the um, draft of this that should be coming out later this year, I guess, from Abington Press. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, it's it's a terrific it's a terrific book. It's a um, where it's not co-authored. No, and it's not co-authored. That's right. That's right. Because this is your area of you know of of the expertise, diving deeply into the world of into the world of Jesus in a fearless sort of way, uh, in it, but a fearless, trusting sort of way. Um, I, 
I kind of over and over again in the in the book, you um, you talk about how it, things may be uh, difficult as as we address these these hard questions, but um, but there's a, a reward at the end. Uh, these texts are difficult, you write, and the journey can be treacherous, but if you persevere, the rewards are enormous. Yeah, I mean, that uh, that invites the, the reader for sure to, to enter into this, this journey. Um, Oh, I'm just I'm just uh, paraphrasing Jesus, right? You know, it's don't go the wide road. It's the narrow path, and not everybody can do it. But boy, if you can manage it, it's fabulous. Um, and in fact, um, you can get a little bit nervous if your um, your presuppositions are shaken up, or the status quo gets shaken up, or somebody says with some sort of authority, "Well, this," and you've always thought that, and then you start doubting yourself, and that that can be really dangerous. But I think an unexamined faith is just, it's its Sunday school. Um, and it, if you just stay where you were when you're six years old and there's there's no development, there's no maturity, there were no questions being asked, um, that sounds to me more like brainwashing than it does to me like a, a considered um, conscious desire to participate in some sort of faith community or some sort of religion. Yes, yes. Well, I... Uh... As, as you kind of invite the reader uh, into this book, you tell the story of your son's uh, bar mitzvah and his exploration as uh, into this area. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about that <laughs> about that story? I loved it also as a parent. I thought, well, that's that's a great parenting technique. <laughs> I was so proud of him. Okay, so um, in Judaism, there's a coming of age ceremony um, for girls at 12 and a half or boys at 13 or thereabouts. Um, and part of the way the practice has evolved well past the time of Jesus. So it's not like, you know, in Luke, when Jesus chats with the people in the temple, that's his bar mitzvah. No, it's not. Um, this shows you Judaism is not just in the first century or just in the book of Leviticus. Um, and the tradition has become that you read a portion from the Torah, the Pentateuch. Um, you read a portion from the prophets that's hooked up with that. So if your listeners are on a lectionary, you'll understand that kind of hookup. Um, and then you give a talk to the congregation about what this passage means to you. And therefore, you take your role as an interpreter of tradition, because anybody in Judaism is welcome to do the interpretation. What rabbis do is they just know more than everybody else. So they, they can make sure that you're citing the sources correctly or suggesting that you may look at something else. So your ceremony is key to your birthday. And both of my children have summer birthdays because when I started in the academy, there was no stopping of the tenure clock if you had a kid. So if you if you were lucky um, and your partner was accommodating, you had a baby sometime between the beginning of June and the middle of August. Um, so Alexander, who was actually a month late, uh, not quite what we had planned, um, first week of August. And that puts us in Deuteronomy because we get to the end of the Pentateuch uh, a little bit after the New Year, so September or October. So we're in Deuteronomy, and his passage um, is the, it's, it's uh, Parshat Shoftim, which is like the wipe out the Canaanites passage. So Alexander, who had gone to Jewish day school, and his Hebrew was really quite good, reads this passage in English, and then he looks up some of the words in Hebrew, and he says, I don't like this passage. Well, yeah, I don't like it either particularly much. Um, and he said to me, well, what do I do? And I said, you talk to the rabbi, because if I were to give you some clues, then it, people would give me the credit. And I wanted to make sure that Alexander had the credit. 
Um, so sometimes it helps to have a mother who's in biblical studies. I could give him some books. Um, and then he spoke to his dad, um, who te- he's professor of modern Jewish culture at Vanderbilt. Um, and he said to his dad, what do I do? And, and Jay wisely said, I think you talk to the rabbi, but I've got some books here on genocide that might be helpful to you. So he goes to talk to the rabbi. And the rabbi did what the rabbis are supposed to do, which is to say, go read the commentaries. So he gave Alexander a number of commentaries to read, and Jay and I had others. And what Alex did is, after reading all these commentaries, wound up giving a talk to the congregation. This is an Orthodox synagogue, a modern Orthodox synagogue, in which he said, I do not like this passage. I think this is a passage that is basically a warrant for genocide. What I do like is being a member of a community that allows me to say that and then allows me to wrestle with that passage. And then he started talking about the books that he had read, Uh, some by um, non-religious scholars, some by Jewish scholars, um, a lot of the Jewish historical interpretation, theological interpretation. Um, And what he said was, um, this commentator says it's just an allegory. It doesn't mean wipe out people. It means get rid of your baser instincts like greed or, or anger. Um, others said you only attack if they're about to attack you in its self-defense and you have to protect your family. Um, the, the more liberal historian said there was no conquest. It never happened. There's no archaeological evidence for it. Um, it's a narrative written by a people in exile and distress that, that want to give themselves a background to suggest that you know they've got the macho ability to do things. Every commentator wrestled with that text. So his conclusion was something along the lines of, I'm glad it's there because it tells us that sometimes we imagine horrible things. Um, I'm glad that when you get to the Talmud and discussing holy war, there's only one paragraph and it says, in effect, don't do it. And that was restricted to the seven nations of Canaan and you can't carry it forward at all. Um, And others said, that's not us. So we, we need to come beyond that. So keep the history there to remind you of what you might have wanted to do, see how awful it is, and then pull away from it so it becomes a negative example. Um, And he actually got applause from the people in the congregation, which is technically not what's supposed to happen after you give it to Vartor on a Saturday morning. Um, we, We could not have been more proud because we try to raise our children the way both of us were raised, which is not saying this is in the Bible, therefore you have to accept it. But rather, this is this is in scripture. What do you think about it? What questions do you have? How do you assess it and take your place among other commentators in the Jewish tradition from the first century up to the 21st? Well, and uh, yeah, so I, I just thought that was such a beautiful and inspirational story, a powerful story. And it represents what you're doing in this book. As you look at the difficult sayings of Jesus, I um I'm happy to go into any of the chapters that you want to, but I do uh, want us to talk about one of the uh, stories that has always, that I've always struggled with, and not just me, but many, and that is the story of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. And, you know, that if if you want to just sketch out the the situation and then how you, how you wrestle with that that story, which is part of the the culture and the reality of of Jesus's time. 
Well, Matthew's, I think Matthew is editing uh, a similar story in Mark chapter 7. Um, the idea that this there were two separate women who came up with more or less the same line, and both of them had demon-possessed daughters, and Jesus has more or less, I mean, that just strikes me as a little bit much. Um, so variation on a theme. Uh, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus meets a woman, um, a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, which is a kind of hoity-toity way of identifying yourself. Like, you know, hi, I'm from Massachusetts. I came over on the Mayflower. Um uh, probably wealthy. He's in a home, private home. Um, and she basically barges in and says, I've got this demon possessed daughter and can you do something? And he says, let the children first be fed. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay. It's not, it's not a great line, but at least it's a timetable. So let me take care of my people first and then there'll be time for you. Um, and, and she says to him in effect, well, you know, even the, the dogs eat the crumbs and he goes, okay, fine. Good line. Your daughter can be healed. And she goes home and the daughter's healed. That's already problematic enough. And then Matthew ratchets it up. And you know that Matthew's ratcheting it up because typically when Matthew uses Mark, and I think Matthew used Mark as a source, Matthew tends to condense. Even though Mark's gospel is shorter, Mark's very wordy. Um, so Matthew tends to condense things. You don't need 20 verses to tell the story of the Gerizim demoniac. You can do it in 14 or whatever. Matthew actually extends this one. So Jesus is outside. Um, it's, he's, he's just had a, a, another argument with Pharisees, which is how he spends most of his time. Um, and he's gone off on the region of Tyre and Sidon. So we're up, up, up around where Lebanon is. Um, not clear that he's crossed the border. And this woman comes out to me. She's crying after him. It's like, help me. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon. And first he ignores her which is not really good policy in any case, right? Somebody needs help, you just kind of look away. And uh, the disciples come in, and they're not in Mark. And the disciples come in, and the Greek says, uh, her. Um, and the traditional readings are, if you're Catholic, it's intercessory prayer, and they're asking him to perform the exorcism. And if it's Protestantism, where there is no intercessory prayers, they're, they're, he's sa they're saying, let him go. I mean, you could read the disciples either way. Um, and Jesus says, um, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, lady, you're not at my table. Um, you're not my responsibility. And I think that's a Matthew. I don't think Jesus actually said that. It would be, be weird for him to have to say that. Uh, because back in the mission discourse in chapter 10, he says to the disciples, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so he's repeating himself. Um, and she, you know, she says, Lord, help me. In fact, she gets on her knees in front of him, which I think means actually she's stopping him in his path. Um, think about wrestling, right? If somebody gets on your knees, your, your gravity center is lower to the ground. So either he has to walk around her or he's got a bowler over, but she's basically literally holding her ground. And he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. There's none of this first late. It's just no. And for all those commentators who insisted he said this with like a smile on his lips and a twinkle in his eye, you call a woman a dog, that, that's not a smiley, twinkly sort of thing. Um, and it's true that Matthew uses uh, kunar. It means kind of like household puppies. But as many have said before me, to call someone a little bitch is not much better than to call her a bitch. And then the commentators come in and say, oh, that's a typical Jewish designation for Gentiles. In fact, is it's not. Um, it actually becomes weirdly enough from John Chrysostom on a typical, a typical Christian identification for Jews. It's just an all-purpose insult, which is why the cynics call themselves cynics. It comes out of kunis because they're, they behave kind of like dogs. Okay. So it's an all-purpose insult. It's not a specifically ethnically targeted one. And she throws his words back at him in a brilliant way. 
right? So think about this. If somebody calls you a dog, um, you really want something, and the person first ignores you, then says you're not at my table, and then calls you a dog. I might be likely to ratchet up the violence, right? As you call me a dog, well, you schmuck, which is not a polite term. But I think it's one that I can get away with on the podcast. Um, you know, or, or something else that would be insulting. You, you hurl the insult back or you ratchet up the violence, right? So she doesn't do that. And she doesn't slink away, right? Tail between legs to continue the metaphor. She doesn't slink away and say, okay, fine, I'll have to go find somebody. She holds her ground, literally. You know, even the dogs under the table get the crumbs. And I think what she's doing here um, is modeling what Jesus himself talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, when you get lines like, um, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, uh, turn to that person the other. And I'm, here I'm following the biblical scholar Walter Wink, um, whose work I find quite helpful, who said that there must be a third way. And that was Walter's term. Not to deny your dignity and not to give up but not to respond with violence either. So you hold your ground. You want to insult me, fine, insult me, but I'm going to hold my ground. I'm still going to do that. And at the same time, because Matthew's a really good author, back in the genealogy, which everybody ignores, you've got these Canaanite women who are paired with, with Jewish men, Israelite men, Hebrew men, um, who don't do what they're supposed to do. Um, like Judah and Tamar, and Judah winds up saying to Tamar after she manages to sleep with him and then give birth to twins. Um, he says to her, you are more righteous than I. Or um, King David regarding Uriah the Hittite, whose wife is mentioned, the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. Or the spies who come into um, who come into Jericho, and then you have Rahab, the Canaanite woman, who does the right thing. And when the spies come into the brothel, they're not looking for the mu munitions. That's not why you go into a brothel. So I think what Matthew has done is say, let's take these Canaanite women in the genealogy, and they then anticipate the Canaanite woman in, in chapter 15, where Jesus plays the role of Judah, or Jesus plays the role you know, of King David that would work. And it's this woman who calls him to account and says, wait a minute, I may not be part of your timetable now, because the Gentile mission will not begin until the Great Commission. But I'm still here, and I'm still deserving. In Mark, it's because of your word, let this be done for you. Matthew changes it to because of your faith. It may be in Matthew that that little girl is standing right there. In Mark, she's back home. But in Matthew, while Jesus is saying this, can you imagine this demon-possessed daughter, it's Karasian, maybe 12 years old or so, is standing right there. And what that story does, two things at least, it tells people who need something and who are struggling to get the ear of someone in authority, somebody who has the resources and you can't get them. You're in the emergency room and you need help, right? Um, you're at the you're at city hall because your your electricity has been turned off. You need something that somebody can give you, and it has to be given out of grace, right? Hold your ground, and if they insult you or if they ignore you. You keep coming back. You use whatever language will help, even if it's self-demeaning, because you're doing this on behalf of somebody else. You're doing this on behalf of your child, and you have to hold your ground. Um, and that's a great lesson. And at the same time, it tells people in authority. So pastors, uh, politicians, you have certain resources and people are depending upon you. And even if they're not part of your church or not part of your municipality or not part of your country, if you have the resources that you can provide for them and nobody takes a loss, 
Jesus is, he's still got pretty of, of he's still got stuff, right? Miracles are still going to happen. Um, then you do that, even if they're not part of your initial job description, because you are a child of God and so is that person. And we all learned something from that. Yeah, and you, as you've unpacked that that parable, um, you've demonstrated the the willingness to continue to look and look and and trust that there there's something there that uh, that's good, rather than the quick answer of oh well Jesus was complimenting her to being a little puppy, right? That's kind of quick exit that way. Right. And more than that, there are, there are pagan stories that have basically the same plot line. There are later rabbinic stories that have basically the same plot line. So, in fact, it may well be that people in Mark's readership or Matthew's readership um, would have seen the convention here. They would have expected it. Oh, here's a woman who needs something. Here's Jesus who has. We know how this is going to play out. She's going to wind up saying something remarkably clever and he's going to yield. Right. Um, it, it happened with Augustus Caesar, it happened with Hadrian, it happened with Rabbi Judah, the prince who codified the mission. So you recognize the convention, um, and that also gives you some strength. Um, so when Jesus says in Matthew, you know, because of your faith, let, let this be done for you. Of course, you can read it as her faith in Jesus, but I think there's also a sense of your personal faith. Because you knew in your heart, because you trusted you, Maybe you can go through that in the same way we might talk about the faith of Jesus, subjective gender, because of Jesus' own faith, he was able to do what he needed to do. And that, and that's such a powerful story. And I, I hate to segue into a light note that you put in that story, but I, I just have to. I'd love to hear the story of your dog that you uh, mention in this, in this story. Your dog's name is Maury, I believe. Maury. That, that's how I'm going to set this up. <laughs> yeah, my dog's name is Maury. I mean, I, I've got the dog, the door closed here. Otherwise, the dog would probably put in an errand. She likes to do that. Uh, we got Maury in the middle of February, the week before the COVID lockdown. Um, so it was very, very good timing. Um, she is an Australian Labradoodle. Um, when I first started reading the Bible, and I, I stand, I'm like, I'm just reading it. So I, I, I read the King James Version because you can get like free copies, right? So I, I, and I'm reading quickly, right? So I got to the chapter in Luke chapter 16, um, where it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, and it's, you know, and moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it registered to me as moreover the dog, which I thought was a great name for a dog. Like you have rollover, you could have moreover. So I thought, if I ever get a dog, I'm going to name the dog Moreover the Dog. So I now have an Australian Labradoodle named Moreover the Dog, but but her little collar says Maury because Moreover is a bit of a hint. <laughs> well, I just I am never going to look at that parable or maybe even the Bible again in quite the same way. Yeah, that. Well, my my daughter got a dog the same day from the same breeder. They're, the dogs are first cousins, and her dog is named Olive after the other reindeer. <laughs> Just think about it for a minute. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, I, I enjoyed reading uh, all of the chapters in this new book that is coming out, all of the chapters in that book. Um, was there a particular, um, when we talked about the Canaanite woman, is there another uh, particular difficult saying of Jesus that you develop that you'd like to talk about? Maybe one of the chapters that was maybe the most uh, difficult yourself to write. Well, um, I, I pulled a number of friends 
and I mean, it helps to teach in a divinity school. So <laughs> former students, uh, present students, a couple of colleagues. And so, so what what did Jesus say that confused you the most or annoyed you the most? And, and I got a huge list. So uh, Abingdon only gave me a certain number of words and only six chapters. So I, I tried to stick in a bunch of extra stuff. Well, this actually goes with this and it's tough. Um, so we looked at, at language of, you know, you have to hate your father and your mother and your wife. And it, and it does say, hate. Matthew just you know, sort of love more, but, you know, love less. But Jesus models of slavery, which particularly given America's new rise to consciousness about our own national history. Um, what does it mean to say you have to be a slave to others, to people who have slaves in their answer, to people who are slaves today because of human trafficking? That's really hard. Um Economic things like it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and to explain like there's there's no camel gate where the camel has to do some sort of gymnastics to go. No, so there's none of that. I mean, so Jesus is really really tough. Uh, the Canaanite woman was on self and other. And what happens if you have a restricted mission? And who are you and who are the others? Um, language of heaven and hell, because I have lots of students who grew up in very conservative traditions where they were so worried that if they, you know, if they doubted the Holy Spirit, poop, that was it, right? Um, or people who were afraid to go to school because they were worried that their parents would be raptured and when they came home, there wouldn't be anybody to let them in. I mean, horrible. Um, the one that was hardest for me, but probably the most important, um, is the last chapter, which deals on how to talk about the Jews in the Gospel of John, um, which comes up for most churches, at least during Holy Week. But it comes up all the time because Jews come up in the Gospel readings all the time. So if you're going to read a Gospel, you're going to get Jews, or in the Synoptics, you're going to get Pharisees. Um, or you're going to get the people of Nazareth, and they all call Jews. Um, and the church tends to think of Jesus and his followers as somehow like Christians. It's just like, whoop, they're already separated. Um, and the message from the sermon is very often, well, thank God we're not like those Jews, um, which is not a terribly good message for a variety of reasons, right? Um, part of what I've done through my career is trying to make it clear that Jesus looks fabulous on his own without having to make Judaism the negative foil. Right. If you have to make Judaism negative in order to make Jesus look good, that's that's pretty bad for Jesus, and that's pretty bad for the church. And if you have to yank Jesus out of his historical context to make him the only Jew who cares about what health care, women's rights, you know, uh, social justice, um, that's not Christian theology because it's denying his own humanity and it's denying his own embeddedness, embeddedness and it's forgetting the entire scripture of Israel, right? What the church would call the Old Testament. So how do we talk about these very, very problematic passages? And part of that comes from what we were talking about before regarding my son Alexander and his, his passage, right? If you have a passage that's a problem, don't ignore it. Oh, I don't think I'll talk about this. I'll talk about pursue justice, which is also part of that section in Deuteronomy. That would have been the easy way out. Um, and I'm not saying that whenever problematic passages come up, that's what the sermon has to be on. But there should be some little note in the order of worship or in the website or a, a, just a mention by the pastor or priest before the service or something to say there's problematic stuff in our passage and we probably ought to deal with it. Um, in the same way that we ought to deal with problematic stuff in our own history, not to erase it and not to say it holds us back and we are that. I mean, we we are not, you know, 19th century America, but that is part of what made us who we are and we have to deal with it. So I tried to deal with it in a benevolent way to say that some of this stuff is really awful 
unless you figure out a way of contextualizing it in the same way that part of American history is really awful. And you have to acknowledge it. And then you have to figure out what you're going to do about it. And if you just say, oh, this is really bad, and then you move on, right, that makes you woke, but it also makes you hypocritical. Yeah. So what were some of the things that you uh, you wrote in that in that chapter um, and in other writings? I know that you've you've dealt with this over uh, this very serious problem. Um, if you could highlight uh, even just a couple of places where especially Christian readers just fail to understand the historical context and thus uh, fall into or promote uh, anti-Jewish readings. Um, and, and they come up so often, unfortunately. I think the major problem is that um, Christians of goodwill cannot hear the problem. Um, so it's it's a kind of cultural cultural disability, in effect, um, as in, in, in the same way that a number of, of um, people who code white in the United States did not realize the extent of racism, right? So uh, people who code Christian do not realize the extent of anti-Judaism. So you had mentioned at the beginning that there's been, there's been an uptick um, in, in anti-Jewish activity, but for a number of us, it's, it, it's always been there. It's, it's always this, this low hum that some people can hear and some people can't in the same way, I think, not quite the same way, but comparable. Um, there's a low hum that's anti-evangelical and there's a low hum, probably not so low, anti-Islam, anti-anything that's not Christianity, anti the party you didn't vote for. And it, we get used to it. Like you get used to that humming or you get used to the train that's outside your window. Eventually you don't hear it. You try to sell your house. It's much harder. When I was a child, and I've used this analogy a number of times, when I was a child, um, when we children were acting in a rambunctious manner, the adults would call out, stop acting like wild Indians. I'm from Massachusetts. We wiped out the indigenous population, you know, a couple of hundred years before I was born, uh, for the most part. Um, And I think about that line today, and I think about how awful it is. But when we were kids, you know, I, I was princess dancing flower, and we would play wild Indians with this kind of romance to it. We're, we became more culturally aware of that type of problem. Um, when I was in the Philippines in 2006, and we were talking about ethnic minorities and, and bigoted statements that we heard when we were kids and whatnot. Um, and, and I'm in a convent. So one of the sisters mentioned to me that when she was little and children were acting in a rambunctious manner, parents would call out, stop acting like Jews. And this comes from the Filipino version of the Mysteries of Elka. It's, it's, it's a Catalonian thing um, where you do in over a couple of days the life of the Blessed Virgin. And at the end of this story where her body is ascending into heaven, it's called the Assumption or the Dormition of the Virgin. Um, the Jews, who were called the Jews, um, try to pull her casket back down and they're acting really rambunctiously and they're jumping up in the air. And parents say, stop acting like Jews. And if there are no Jews in the area then it's much easier to make such sort of comments because you've got nobody to say, excuse me, over here, harmful statement. So how do we hear with more finely attuned ears, to use a Jesus metaphor, let those who have ears let them hear. How do we hear the anti-Judaism that may be conveyed by a text that goes uninterpreted or a text that goes interpreted problematically? And how do we prevent that from happening? It's the easiest way of doing it. 
And there's no quick fix on anything. But as, as I tell my students, the easiest way of doing it is to picture me in the back pew. And if you wouldn't say it in front of me, don't say it in front of your congregation. When my kids were little, I used to bring them to class. They always had Passover off, and New Testament was always in the spring. So I bring my little kids from the Jewish day school, you know, like my daughter with her long skirt and my son with his little seat, seat his ritual fringes sticking out in his kippah. Um, and I would say to them, like, don't say anything that will hurt this child, and don't say anything that will cause a member of your congregation to hurt this child, this little Jewish kid. And it's theatrical and it's manipulative, but by gosh, it's effective. Yes. Think of who's out there. Words mean something. Yes. Yeah. And we stereotype. What would be some of the most dangerous stereotypes? I mean, you've mentioned some of them that parents use to try and control their kids. But when we think theologically and about Jesus's teaching, what are some of the um, stereotypes? And you talk about this a little bit. I'm, I'm just going to plug your book or the um, the Jewish annotated New Testament that you and uh Mark Bressler did. Bressler, yes, we co-edited, but we had, we had what sixty-eight other contributors to this. Yes, thing. I mean it is an amazing, uh, it's an amazing resource. I recommend everyone have a copy. Yeah, thank you. Three years out of my life for that. Um, yeah, so I have an article in there um, on uh, the common errors that are made. I mean, I have a file. Uh, it's basically stupid things that ministers say. So. Um, here's one that, that that's perpetuating. Um, I, I just finished up an article on Mary and Martha. Boy, try to say something new about Mary and Martha. So I, I, I think I managed. But in any case, I thought one of the things that I would do is look up to see how Mary and Martha is being preached. So I just went on the internet and Googled Mary and Martha sermons. There's tons of them. And what they typically do is say, the rabbis say, and as soon as you get that, you know it's going to be bad. Um, and you know it's going to be anachronistic um, because the rabbinic literature is later than the time of Jesus. And you know it's going to be very selective. So you're going to take the most negative thing a rabbi could have possibly said in all the pages of Talmud. Like the rabbis say, you know, teach, teaching a woman Torah is like teaching her blasphemy or something like that, which one of them actually did say. And then another one comes in and says, no, you're absolutely wrong, but let's ignore that one. Retroject that back to the time of Jesus, and then because Jesus teaches Mary that he's 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 the the subversive, the countercultural, the transgressive, um, because first century Judaism was of course absolutely awful, and Jesus has to like drop in from heaven and fix things. So what are the stereotypes that first century Judaism epitomized misogyny and Jesus invents feminism and the pantsuit? That first century Judaism is entirely militaristic and warlike, and the reason they reject Jesus is because he talked about peace, which is by no means correct, and besides which his followers are armed. Uh, that first century Judaism was completely xenophobic, they hated Gentiles, um, and Jesus uh, invents universalism. Well, that would be weird considering that the J Jerusalem temple has a court of the Gentiles. You don't welcome people you hate into your holiest place. And there are God-fearers, Gentiles who are affiliated with Jews in synagogue systems, and you don't welcome them into the synagogue either if you really hate them. So that, that's just weird. Uh, the, when I get comments, this is very common, about Jesus' ministers to the outcast. And he said, well, who's outcast, right? Cast out by whom? Cast out from what, Right. Oh, well, people who are ritually impure. No, they're not outcasts. That's most of the population most of the time. And what Jesus does with people who are ritually impure is restore them to states of ritual purity. He doesn't do away with the system. He affirms it. 
that first century Jews thought of God as this transcendent, distant king, Old Testament God of wrath, and Jesus invents a God of kindness and compassion, right? Did, like, did, did they miss the Psalms? Um, so it's just all over the place. And it's it, where does it come from? It comes from insufficient biblical studies given to people who want to be pastors, from Bible scholars who might be really good at JEDP, ML, and Q, but have no sense on on how to talk to their students who are, who are going to be ministers about what this thing means later, to people who don't know the stereotypes and therefore either reinforce them or ignore them, which means they stay put, sins of omission as well as commission. For Christians who, who I think have weak Christology, and I can't prove this, but I think this is the case. If you think that Jesus really is who the Gospels claim him to be, or who Paul claims him to be, then he is unique by definition. He is the only begotten Son of God who walks on water, raises the dead, dies, comes back, and ascends. Nobody else is doing that. Oh, there are a couple of dead, crazy people, but for the most part, this is distinct, which means you don't have to yank him out of his first century Jewish context. He's already distinct. But some of the worst sermons I've heard have come from liberals who are supposed to know better, right, with historical critical material, right, who, who have weak Christology. So they can't accept the miracles and they can't accept the Christological claims, but they're still invested in Jesus. So how do you make him unique, which is a theological category? You make him the only Jew who's a social justice warrior in the first century, and you create a Jewish context that's toxic, and that's weak Christology. And that's, that's really sad. Right? Why, why are we so insistent on negatively stereotyping others in order to make ourselves look good? It's insane. It's bad history, it's bad theology, and it's bad ethics. I think we can do better. Well, and I, as I say, I think you, you have provided the resources uh, in the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which I've used so many times, um, both the essays in the in the back and then the the comments the the study notes, um, yeah, to to really um, think again, think more deeply about the ramifications of of what you're saying, and and rest in the in the struggle, or probably rest is not the right word. Just be be content enough to to struggle with something rather than just give a pat answer. Or, push off or do something else. Yes. Um, wokeness, I find to be just fairly annoying, right? You know better and you're still not doing anything, really. Um, but I mean, the cool thing here is that the reason we were, Mark and I were able to do the Jewish annotated, and we got all these other Jews to sign on to do it too, um, is because of the rapprochement, the outreach that um, certain Christian denominations or church bodies and individual Christians such as yourself um, you've reached out to us and said, we need to read this together. We need to work together. Um, we might disagree on certain fundamental things, but we also agree on certain fundamental things. We need to stop bearing false witness against each other. The reason we could do the Jewish annotated is because Christians made the first move. Yeah. And that that's encouraging. It's a reciprocal book. We need each other. Absolutely. Well, you have spent so much time in the world of Jesus and in the world of Jewish Christian dialogue, contemporary Jewish Christian dialogue. Um, but there's another uh, area of your scholarship that is equally as rich, and that looks at women uh, in the New Testament and the early Christian writings. You have uh, edited 13, is it 13 volumes of the Feminist Companion to the New Testament and Early Christian Writings. Um, you're currently now editing some of the volumes for the Wisdom Commentary series. Um, 
I, I, and you have uh, potentially are producing uh, a book. You said it's not written yet, but I love the title. Is it okay if I say it? We can always edit it out. If uh, Does God Hate Women? <laughs> Yes, but well, that was suggested by my editor at Harper. Harper's very, very good with titles. Yes. <laughs> I was I was quite happy to do that. So the, the areas in which I work are the two areas where A, I have interest, B, I have expertise, and C, and most important, um, they're areas where biblical interpretation hurts people. So there's this old line, it's not original to me, that the Bible should be a rock you stand on rather than a rock that you throw to do damage to others. And I've seen Jewish people um, and other religious groups, but in, in particular for me, Jewish people hurt by uh, ill-informed Christian readers who come up with all sorts of horrible stereotypes about me or will say to me or say to my children, you know, it's really too bad you're going to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. Like there's, you've either literally got a screw loose or you're a child of the devil. But there's got to be something wrong with you because it would be so obvious, you know, if you just looked at the Old Testament quotations. But I've also seen people hurt. I've seen women hurt, women who want to go into ministry and they're told by their dads, you know, well, uh, women can't teach, preach or have authority over men. Right. Be quiet. You know, you got, you got screwed up from Eve and it's, it's bad news ever since. People on the LGBTQI plus spectrum. Right. If you're not heterosexual and married, there's something wrong with you. Uh, people who develop all sorts of guilt because of what they and then and then they like have a Jesus moment and they do feel forgiven, but they still got all this guilt because of what they did you know, beforehand and you fill in the blanks. And, and the Bible winds up inculcating guilt and it becomes judgmental. A number of I know a number of people um, and it's happening less now. So people my age and up that, you know, got sent away to visit like Aunt Jane for nine months and then and then sort of came back a little thinner than when they went, than when they left. People who have lost their jobs uh, in ministry because their child did something inappropriate. Right. So you go to the, the deacon language and the bishop language and can't control your household, then you can't be part of this church. I mean, it's all sorts of horrible things and, and this disfellowshipping and guilt, judgmentalism. And so much of it's on the, the gender sexuality spectrum. It's also the case in Judaism, by the way. Um, so I'm a member of an Orthodox congregation. You can tell I'm not Orthodox. How can you tell you I'm wearing something that's sleeveless? I am not permitted in my congregation to read Torah that counts. I can read it and I can teach little kids. But if it comes to the real service, I, I can't. You have to be a man. Um, so, but I, I love my congregation. I love the liturgy. I love the, the Torah studies. Fabulous. I've got lots of friends in the congregation and I'm not willing to give up on it. But anything that I can do to teach the little girls in that congregation, by the way, you can do this and this. And when it comes to Torah study outside of the actual service, I'm treated as an equal. So, you know, I'm staying with the program, but there there are problems across the board. There are. There absolutely and, are. Right. And even in liberal churches mm -hmm. that ordain women, there's there's what gets called the stained glass ceiling. So you might get ordained, but it's going to be harder for you to be the one to give the sermon, assuming you want to, not everybody does, to give the sermon every Sunday, or for you to be the senior pastor, or for you to be a bishop, right? Um, and uh, things are getting better, but we're still talking about like the first woman who did something, something. And to talk about the first woman who did something, something in 2021 just sounds odd to me. And when when you look at it, and you've referenced it a little bit, even you referenced your new article coming out on Mary and Martha. Where where do these stereotypes percolate up from in in terms of the gospel? You mentioned some of Paul's 
letters or the Pauline letters. Um, but within the within the Gospels and Jesus's teaching, where 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 do we go wrong? <laughs> Well, part of it is if you begin with Paul, then you're going to find support for Paul from the Gospels, right? If you begin with Jesus, you're going to find support from Je- for Jesus from the Old Testament, right? So it's it's, re- it's retroactive reading. So on Mary and Martha, even the most conservative readers um, will still contrast this passage. I'm just looking at the Luke version, so Luke 10, 38 to 42. Um, we'll, well, Jesus allows a woman to sit in his feet and, and listen to him. But she doesn't say anything. So therefore, he's not putting her up in a leadership capacity. And as soon as Martha says she's busy with much diaconing, deaconing, right, uh, then, oh, well, you know, women can't do that because they're they're too easily distracted. So therefore, women can't be a deacon. And therefore, it, and that's an overread of what the verb means. Um, and therefore, women can't be in church leadership. So if you look for it, you can find it. Or you get comments like, well, Jesus didn't ordain any women. Well, he didn't ordain any men either. There's no ordination ceremony for for the apostles. And then one of them was kind of a screw-up. In fact, most of them were screw-ups. Just one of them screwed up really, really badly. And and then, well, then they say, well, the 12 apostles were all men. Yeah, they were also all Jews, but Gentiles seem to have done pretty well in the church. So there's, there's or you know, if, he had, if he'd wanted to ordain somebody, he would have ordained his mother. Okay, she's got enough to do. I was just going to say, boy, that one is actually new to me. Are you just saying that right now? And uh, okay, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, right. She's she's taking a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, if you want to look for it, you can find it um, because we're always reading through additional lenses. Um, we know that there there were de- women deacons in the early church because we've got inscriptional and arche- archaeological uh, evidence for that. And the Roman Catholic Church is now reinvestigating the question of whether you can have like deaconesses throw on throw on the feminine term. But you've got Phoebe in the Epistle to the Romans who's just called a diaconos using the male term. So if you want to find something in the Bible, you can find it. You know, starve a fever, feed a cold. I've said, fuck, you can find it. God helps those who help themselves. If you look closely enough, you'll probably find that one too, although it's not there. Because we're always imposing our own readings on that. Um, and that may be ne- necessary because the Bible doesn't speak to all of the things that we are concerned about today, right? The Bible doesn't speak to in vitro fertilization or um, opening a womb to heal a fetus of a, of a congenital heart defect. So we, we, you have to figure out what to do about this stuff. Um and there will be a case, there will be cases where all the stuff that I do as an historian will not help because history is not going to resolve the problem. The Bible is contextual and sometimes it says awful things and it means them, but it, or it meant that in that original context. But part of what we can do as biblical readers is we can also read the Bible as literature. We can read it against the grain. We can read it as negative exemplars. And it will ultimately be the theologians and the ethicists rather than the biblical historians who will make some sort of progress when it comes to something like love of God and love of neighbor. Best example of that um, is the Roman Catholic Church, which in 1965 at Vatican II produced a document called Nostra Aetate, meaning in our time that says uh, we cannot blame all Jews at all times for the death of Jesus. Some back there then, yes, but not all Jews and not for all time. And there are passages where you can blame all Jews for all time. And that's how that idea developed. And the Vatican said no. And it was a split vote to get this thing passed. But they said, here's where we want to move. And good for them. In the same way that other churches have said, well, there are some passages that say women should not teach or preach or have authority, but there are other passages that suggest that women did. 
So instead of reading this way, we're going to read that way, and we're going to put this text up here and this text down here. And here's where we think the Word of God is going. Um, the Johannine paraclete, the Johannine Holy Spirit, is kind of a placeholder till Jesus shows up again. And what it's supposed to do is continue to teach. Not just remind you of the old stuff, there's a continuity there. And you, you get a similar sense in rabbinic Judaism, there's a continuity. Um, God hasn't stopped speaking, and we have not stopped as a society from moving on from where we were. And maybe if we interpreted our sacred scriptures correctly, we could evolve rather than devolve. Maybe. Um, maybe if we could keep working on ourselves to make ourselves better people rather than judging others, that might be a good thing. Maybe if we could start practicing hospitality. I mean, stuff like but you know all that. And if we could stop um, in biblical studies, so you and I, I think biblical scholars are guilty of this. We read people we like. One of the reasons I co-authored a book with Ben Witherington III, Ben and I did a commentary on the Gospel of Luke together, which everybody said, pretty much everybody said, you what? Because Ben's a really, really conservative evangelical. He's United Methodist. We can still talk about United Methodists. That, that term may be anachronistic a year from now. And we, we don't agree on the history. We don't agree on the theology. We agree on, we both like the Boston Red Sox and we both drink bourbon. Um, and we are really, really close friends. So one of the reasons we wrote this book is not only do we like working with each other, but we figured people who would normally read Ben would not come near me, and people who would normally read me would not come near Ben. Maybe if we had a commentary where, where we disagree, and we do frequently, as Ben says this, AJ says this, Ben gets a counter, moving on. Or AJ says this, Ben says that, AJ gets a counter, moving on, to show that there's some stuff we do agree about. Um, and here's how you can argue with somebody over the Bible. I mean, how important is that you argue over the Bible and you can still be friends? That seems to us like a helpful thing to have. And that's what you model, not just in that uh, book, but in in your other work, that um, that willingness to wrestle with the text and invite others into the conversation because, you, you know, you, you want to you want to learn so that you can be the kind of person that you want to be, that love of God, love of neighbor uh, person. I, I think also, and I'm struck with this as you, as we've been talking, and I felt this as I, uh, as I've read your things, including uh, this newest book coming out on the difficult sayings of Jesus. There is a realness to your historical reconstruction and also your day-to-day -day interaction with actual people. As you said, uh, imagine me sitting, that is you, <laughs> AJ, sitting in the congregation. How would I, Lynn, preach? Um, and and you, you bring the Canaanite woman to life. She's an actual person. And Jesus it, uh, grants her the dignity of being a real person person, you grant Jesus and the Canaanite woman the uh, the dignity of being these real people who are wrestling with the uh, the struggles that, that we face, as you talked about, health and family and what what is my purpose? 
Um, the, the late Gail O'Day, um, who taught both homiletics and New Testament at Emory, um, talked about the Canaanite lady as, as, as modeling a lament psalm. A lament psalm like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you just keep going on, right? You call God to account and you can read the story, not not even as an historical moment. You can read it as an enacted lament psalm. I mean, there are various ways of doing it. Um, and what I find to be really helpful um, is read what other people have said. And to be a good biblical scholar, if you're going to send something out, send it to people who know what they're doing to make sure that it's okay. Um, and if I tread into somebody else's area, then I'm going to write to somebody else and say, hey, you're part of this group. How does this sound to you? Right. And at the same time for my graduate students to make sure that they have their own voice, because I don't want them being little models of me. So even in the wisdom commentary series that I'm editing, I keep writing back to the author saying, I want more of you here. What's your take? It's a, it's a feminist commentary. Tell me what you think and tell me why and tell me what's at stake for you. And we biblical scholars have been so trained to write in this objectivist manner as if, like, you know, we, we have no stake in what we're writing. We have a huge stake in what we're writing. So say so and be honest about it. And that that is, I, I'm looking at the time. It has flown by. Um, so we're going to have to... Uh, hold for now our conversation, but that's a great way to, to end, to encourage people um, to work in community and to say, uh, to say what they think. That's the Canaanite lady. You don't get the answer you want, push back. That's it. That's it. AJ, it has been so, just so much fun to talk with you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. And I know our listeners will also uh, just be, uh, benefit very much from the wisdom in reading your books and certainly in listening to our conversation. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time today. Absolute pleasure, Lynn. Thank you very much. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.